Hi, this is Ben Lowell of Back to the Bible Canada. Today we continue our current series, Life Lessons from David, The Man Who Would Be King. Let's turn in our text to 1 Samuel 17, 55 to 18, verse 5, for a message called, Learning You Cannot Fight Alone. We have embarked upon a study of the life of David, but we're restricting this study to the time before he became the king of Israel. Our purpose in doing this is to learn more from and about the man who was surely to become one of the greatest men who had ever lived. From his life, we can learn to understand how we can live lives of significance, how we can make a difference, and how our lives might count for the kingdom of God. Now, up till now, we've noticed several things. God chose David to become the king. He did not rise to it by his own aspirations. David did not choose the time in which he lived, nor his calling. That was chosen by God. From that, we learn to be content to allow God himself to direct and use us in the way he chooses. Don't choose to become great. Seek rather to respond faithfully to the calling God provides for us. Submit to God's will. Don't superimpose your own will on your life. We also noticed how God was preparing David for his role as he labored in obscurity as a shepherd. There he learned the art of battle as he faced both a lion and a bear. And there he learned to be faithful even when others might have felt that what he was doing was of no importance. From that we learned that God never wastes our experiences. If we despise a role that seems insignificant in our eyes, we despise how God might direct our hearts in the service of his gospel. How easy it is to think of the great things we might accomplish rather than to think that to become a man or a woman after the heart of God is worth far more than the applause of men. David's life as a shepherd would be an invaluable skill he would need later. God was preparing him. But then, all of a sudden, David went from obscurity to popularity. After his battle with Goliath, his courage, faith, and obvious leadership skills would catapult him onto a public stage. And for David, after his defeat of Goliath, well, his life would never be the same. His days of obscurity were now permanently ended. People would sing about him. Saul, they sang, has struck down his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Because David was a natural leader, men would follow him, dedicating themselves to his service. Wow, he had hit the big times. Yes, prior to this, he had the opportunity to play music before the king, but then no one had noticed him. But now he would be noticed everywhere he went. He was the man. More than one person has been ruined by stardom. Sudden fame rather than gradual recognition can be devastating. One author said, fame is a seductress. It draws us in with one tempting thought, the allure of more. Thousands of screaming fans, the thrill of an audience. It hits us right where we're at our weakest, right where so many of us fall, where evil itself originates, our pride. The author went on to say, why are there so many Hollywood divorces, so many rock stars in rehab? Why are mega pastors prone to moral failure? And then he answers his own question. Once it hooks you with its seductive claws and addicts you with its compulsive nature, fame begins to sink its teeth into you. Slowly it takes over until you are no longer yourself. You are only your public persona. See, David was about to discover a life that others would merely dream about. People would sing about him. He would become a household name. The question to answer at this point is this. What shall become of us when all men speak well of us? 
What should become of us when men and women begin to notice what we do? And it's right here that David's life has so much to teach us. Surprisingly, what keeps David sane where others have fallen is that God providentially brings a faithful friend into David's life, and this friend is none other than the son of Saul, the man people would have thought would have been the natural heir to the throne. Let's read 1 Samuel 17, 55-58. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, Inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. See, before David even stepped out onto the battlefield that would permanently change his life, the Bible tells us of a conversation that took place between King Saul and Abner, the general or the commander of the army. Saul wants to know who this man David is. A great many critics of the Bible argue that this paragraph represents a problem with the continuity of this account. How, they ask, can this be possible? Now, if we go back to chapter 16, verse 18, we find Saul's servants wanting to find someone to play the harp when an evil or harmful spirit comes to torment Saul. And so they do. One of the servants finds David and introduces him to Saul as the son of Jesse the Bethlehemite. And now right before David steps out onto the battlefield against Goliath, Saul is evidently still asking the same question. Who is this guy and what family does he belong to? But this presents us with no difficulty at all. Saul is meeting people all the time. He's constantly meeting with Israel's elders and leaders. He's constantly recruiting the best fighting men in the country. David hardly registers onto his radar screen. A musician in his court, he's not that important and he doesn't notice. But now as this same young man is about to do what no one in his army had the courage to do, fight the Philistine champion, Saul takes great enduring interest in him. But no one had taken notice of him in the past, and so no one really knows him. Then after David's stunning victory over Goliath, he again appears before Saul, and this time the bloody head of the Philistine champion is in his hand, and Saul asks, whose young man are you? Of course, Saul has promised to give his daughter in marriage to the man who kills Goliath, and so now Saul is sizing him up. What family do you actually belong to? And if you're now to be related to the royal house and suddenly to be made rich, I want to know who you are. David is now finding that not only he, but his entire family will be vaulted onto the public stage. So let's learn a life lesson here. Fame changes one's life. You and I have heard people say, I'm going to be the same person I've always been. But that's simply not the case. It feels different when people you have never met before tell you how much they admire you and have encouragement for you. It's difficult not to believe the compliments. But how does one remain sane in all of this? Well, God was about to provide David with something he did not seek. Let's read 1 Samuel 18, 1 to 4. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. 
And so David is launched into national fame. And as his life as an obscure shepherd comes to an end, indeed, he never goes back to that life again. God provides David with the very thing that will help him adjust to this new life. He gives him a friend who will help him navigate the difficult pathway before him. Now, before we examine the meaning of the friendship, we will do well to clear the table. Because in the short passage we have just read, we are twice told that Jonathan loved David. And there are those who charge that David and Jonathan must have had a homosexual relationship. I find the comment tragic for a number of reasons. First, we now live in a culture, and by this I mean Western culture, wants to sexualize everything. When on a recent ministry trip in Germany, I was told that first-grade students are instructed that one of the adventures that they will discover in school is their sexual identity. I was overwhelmed. Our sexualized culture has reached into the lives of small children. Even they are being sexualized long before puberty. And from a culture now awash in sexual soup, it seems impossible for men to express love for each other without thinking about raging hormones for each other. Let me tell you a little story. Several years ago, my wife and I had an African pastor. He was a a godly man from Rwanda staying with us over a little over a week. He was attending a conference in our area, and we were delighted to host him. Now, through that time, he and I would sit up well into the night and talk everything from his experiences in the Rwandan killing fields to our common hope in Christ. You know, in a short week, a bond developed between us. And on the day he was headed out back to the airport for home, my wife said, you two have had such a wonderful time. Let me just take a picture of the two of you. And we stood in front of the garage at her house. And, and as we stood there, he reached over to hold my hand. You know, as a Westerner, I just froze. Uh, He sensed it immediately, and he let go. So what was going on? You know, in many African countries, it's common for men to walk hand in hand. There's no sexual connotation behind that at all. It's It's a symbol of friendship. And after that incident, I felt sadness. You know, we live in a culture that has forgotten a world in which men really did confess love for one another. In our sexualized culture, we've forgotten that it is possible to love without a hint of sexual desire, but with a sense of sharing of friendship so deep that the two men would gladly lay down their lives for each other. And in their book, the lonely American authors Jacqueline Olds and Richard Schwartz, both medical doctors, point out that 25% of American households now consist of only one person. In contrast, they point out that in 1940, that number was 7%. There's a growing and increasing loneliness among people, which they point out affects our physical and emotional health. When it comes to some of the greatest physical and psychological needs people have, write Olds and Schwartz, the elephant in the room is loneliness. And when we come back, we're going to see that the relationship between David and Jonathan transformed the kind of a leader that David would become. Unlike David, one of the greatest men in the Bible will probably never experience such great fame and popularity. But it's a good reminder for all of us that whatever successes or achievements that come, our way must never be higher than our pursuit of God. The ability to remain grounded in our faith is so critical. And as we've seen from this introduction, God can use solid friendships to help us stay level-headed. We'll gain more insight into the relationship between David and Jonathan as Dr. Neufeld continues right after the break. So this is it, the last couple of days before the new year. 
So we want to express our gratitude for all you've done to support the year-end ministry campaign. And if you've not had the opportunity yet, today through to midnight on December 31st is critical for helping us reach our year-end goal of $517,000. Your gifts go towards the ongoing creation and distribution of all our Bible teaching and engagement resources, including print, video, audio programming, along with purchasing airtime across Canada, and so much more. Together, we're making God's word of truth available to as many people within Canada and around the world as possible. Please consider your donation today to receive a 2023 tax receipt. You can do so at backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. For those of us who have never experienced a friendship that could be described as love, let's have a look at the kind of relationship David and Jonathan share. First, notice that the text says that this relationship began after David had defeated Goliath. We are right here to notice what attracted Jonathan to David. On the one hand, we might find this relationship surprising because there was an age difference between them. Jonathan had already become a seasoned fighting man, and David was still under the age one would normally have to be to serve in the army. Furthermore, while Goliath was taunting Israel, it would appear that Jonathan himself had not gone out to fight against Goliath. In spite of his age, David represented a level of faith Jonathan admired and had not yet achieved. Now, that's not to mean that Jonathan was a coward. In 1 Samuel 14, at the outset of the Battle of Michmash, while Israel was hiding from the Philistines, Jonathan and his armor-bearer had climbed up a rocky crag and had killed about 20 men on a small piece of ground, and that courageous act was enough to have inspired a great victory over the Philistines. But David's courageous act against Goliath was greater than the faith and courage that Jonathan presently had. What Jonathan saw in David were three things. First, faith as David believed that God would deliver him from Goliath's hand. Second, courage to stand in the day of battle. And third, a passionate zeal for God. Jonathan had those things as well, but he would have seen in David a measure of these virtues as he had never met in any man before. He was, if you will, a soulmate, someone whose life was what he deeply loved. You know, at the very outset, one can see what made their friendship a possibility. Deeply within, they shared the same passions. Contrast that today, where so many friendships are based upon escaping the loneliness of life or merely having someone around to do things with. Instead, these two men shared a life's mission together. Together, they loved the God of Israel and were committed to securing the promised land for the chosen people. It's what they both lived for, and they saw that in each other. It's the fact that they shared a common life's mission that made them friends. You know, there's a second aspect of their friendship we must not miss. According to verse 4, Jonathan gave David his armor, and as we've noted before, almost all Hebrew fighting men fought in battles without armor. In this gift, we find Jonathan's commitment to David. He was willing to make himself vulnerable in order that David would be made safe. We should see in this act several things. First, Jonathan gave David that which was precious or valuable. Armor such as Jonathan had would not have been easily attained, and it was worth much. Second, Jonathan seems intent on making sure that David, 
who would now be locked in battles for most of his life, would be as safe as Jonathan could make him. Jonathan would commit himself to looking out for him. And this is the key, even at his own expense. More than one Bible teacher has pondered Jonathan's commitment to David at his own expense. In in 1 Samuel 20, when Saul is attempting to kill David and Jonathan acts to protect his friend from his father, Saul tells his son, As long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Saul knows that there is no greater threat to Jonathan inheriting the kingdom after his father than David. And yet, Jonathan will not betray his friendship with his friend. More than one Bible teacher points out that this constitutes a lack of envy in the Lord's work. A true servant of the Lord has no concerns over his or her personal advancements, but is more concerned that God's work gets done. Well, that's certainly true, but I think it only gets at half of the story. If you go back to 1 Samuel 13, you may remember that before the battle of Michmash began, Saul had offered up unlawful sacrifices to God. He's not a Levite. He's from the tribe of Benjamin, and as such, he is not permitted to sacrifice to God. Because of this irreverent act, Samuel in 1 Samuel 13, 13 and 14 condemns him. The passage reads, And Samuel said to Saul, You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. Now Jonathan would have heard this and known immediately that it was meant also for him. His father, through his sin, had been prevented from having a dynasty, and that meant that Jonathan would never come to the throne. Jonathan knew that, and he believed that to have come from God. And then, of course, in 1 Samuel 15, Saul sins grievously a second time. And in 1 Samuel 15, 26, Samuel tells Saul that God has rejected him from being king, and Jonathan would have heard that as well. And there's another factor. In 1 Samuel 24, verse 20, in a moment of weakness, Saul himself admits to David that he knows that David will surely become king. How does he know that? Have father and son been talking about this? Well, we don't know, but we know that both Saul and his son Jonathan knew what God had made clear. Jonathan would never be the next king of Israel. Now, because Jonathan knew that, he had a decision, either to submit to God's will for his life or not. And for Jonathan, his passion was in his God. And so whether he knows David will be the next king right here or not, he has taken his armor off, given it to David, believing his role from this moment on was to support David in his endeavor. And in the process, even though David is younger, Jonathan gives his life to supporting David's ministry. See, I find Jonathan to be one of the great figures of history. His selflessness and his embracing of the divine role that God has given him is absolutely inspiring. Even as David never sought the kingship, but accepted it when God declared to him his intention, so also Jonathan just as willingly accepted the supporting role and not the kingship that God had given him. You know, we've been talking about David's sudden rise to fame and how this might have destroyed his life. But God gave David a friend, a fellow soldier in battle, a man who shared his passion for his God, and a man who, like himself, would embrace the role that God had given him. So how was it that sudden fame did not destroy David? Because David was to learn what we must all learn, that we can't fight these battles alone. For those of us who want our lives to matter, for those of us who want to be significant, for those of us who want to be about purpose and not meaningless existence, we do well to remember two things. 
We do well to remember first, we cannot become what God wants us to become on our own. We cannot walk alone. God, in his infinite wisdom, has determined that we should serve him in the company of others and in the concert with others. See, that's what the church is, and that's what meaningful friendship does. Proverbs 18.24 says that there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And two men or two women who walk side by side with each other, who share the same passion, will indeed identify that as friendship. Now, second, we cannot live lives of significance unless we embrace the role that God has for us to play. We need to get beyond being disappointed with God's role for us, and we need to begin to willingly embrace that a loving God best directs our lives. You know, our passage of Scripture ends, and that is 1 Samuel 18, verse 5 says, And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people, also in the sight of Saul's servants. Slowly, David's future was taking shape. A warrior, a leader of men and of troops, eventually he would become a brilliant military strategist, and eventually the people of Israel would look to him for leadership. David's victory over Goliath changed his life. He was, in our words, moving up the ladder, but God was providing him the support he needed so that he would not be a casualty to the seductiveness of fame and his own success. God would see to it that a faithful friend who knew all about fame and success himself would mentor him and guide him and never betray their friendship. John, thanks for your message today. It gave me cause to wonder, though, why do men have such a hard time being in relationship with other men? I mean, meaningful relationship. Yeah, it is true. There have been books that have even written about friendless American, I think I can say Canadian men as well. I do think there is a key in this passage, that is, these two men shared a common passion. And I think a uniqueness about male friendship is that males become deep friends when they share a passion to do something together or to accomplish something together. And that passion for something together melts our hearts together. So I think men need to become passionate about the gospel. And I think they need to find like-minded men. And I do think it will enrich friendship and bring more friends. When we learn more about the deep friendship between David and Jonathan, we begin to understand what it was built upon, their individual commitment to God. And it's this passion for their God that bonded them so closely, and in a sense models the kinds of relationships we ought to have in our lives. Let us seek to be men and women who stand alongside one another in Christ as we face the struggles of life together. Please listen again next week as we begin week two of the series on David, the man who would be king with Dr. John Newfeld. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Hi, Dr. John Newfeld here. Right away, thank you so much for listening, supporting, and praying for Back to the Bible Canada. This year, I've been privileged to share God's Word around the world, and I've never been more convinced of the importance of the mission of Back to the Bible Canada. But I know this, I wouldn't be here, and this program wouldn't exist without your help. Truly, it's such a joy to study God's Word with you. 
This month, the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada share a goal of raising $517,000 by December 31st. Can I ask if you're able to consider a gift to support this ministry? It would mean so much, not just to us, but to so many in desperate need of truth. Call us, would you, at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.